Father, we come to you right now. We're going to open up your word. We need you to speak to our hearts. It's a busy day. It's been a hectic day. There's been you know, rain this morning. Our spirits are somewhat dampened by even that. And I pray that you would help us to just be hungry for your word. Be hungry not to just go through motions, but to learn, to be able to get something to carry us through this week. You designed this whole idea of church on the first day of the week to help us, to challenge us, to prepare us for what's ahead. So you must have something in plan if you're tearing that we are going to need this study to help us through, to serve you better, to learn. So I pray you help us. Help me as I communicate the simplicity of the passage, to keep it simple, to keep it flowing, to keep it going, and to present it in a provocative way. But at the same time, help the individuals here who are tired, worn out from a week, who have other things on their mind. Help them to be focused. Help them to get a oomph of some, some awakeness and alertness to gain and glean something from your word. Help us as a group that gathered this morning not to just go through the idea of being here and meeting obligation, but help us to be fed by your spirit through your word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's an idea that we say in our culture, we use irony. Irony is basically taking a situation and here you've got the circumstance or the statement and all of a sudden something happens that you totally don't expect. Like somebody who's writing vandalism and saying, this is what I hate, people who vandalize. Or using list, or somebody that says a prophecy class due is canceled due to unforeseen circumstances. That's irony. That's something you don't expect to having a in memory of you know the guy Dave who founded Wendy's, and all of a sudden right next, you know we're looking for new employees. That guy just doesn't fit. Here's some ironic situations that that have come up. McDonald's several years ago on their own employees' health guide on their website for the employees once warned against eating McDonald's burgers and fries because it wasn't healthy for you. Here's irony for you. The guy who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, when he was dying, he asked for a drink. His caregiver refused to give it to him. Charlie Chaplin, who had that distinct walk in those movies years ago, entered a contest to walk like Charlie Chaplin. He didn't come in first place. He was number 20. Here's irony for you. Charlie Brown's Christmas. You ever watched the thing? Remember? Have you seen it? Okay. What is the overriding theme that Charlie Brown is lamenting? The over-commercialization of Christmas. What's interesting to notice that ABC in the last few years has been cutting it shorter and shorter to add more time for commercials. It's an ironic situation. Here's an irony for you. That Al Capone, that man who made millions through bootlegging, that you know, number one public enemy, his brother was one of the police working for the federal prohibition. That in his own family, his brother worked in Wisconsin, just north of him. Here's irony. The guy who founded basketball, he took the job as a coach of the University of Kansas. He has the worst record of any coach in Kansas history. Here's irony for you. The Beatles. Ever hear of them? Okay, some of you have. Okay, They're, they were a group famous, and so in 2002, in memory of George Harrison, they planted a tree there and you know, made a big commotion in downtown Los Angeles that they were going to put this, this tree and they were going to commemorate him and all these different things. The tree died of a beetle infestation. <laughs> now, isn't that ironic? Of all things, yeah. Here's an irony for you. This Bill Hillman writes a book. He's a, he was a, uh, involved with bullfighting. He writes a book. 
How not to be gored was the essence of it. Don't get gored by a bull. Three, uh, three weeks after the book was published, he died of being gored by a bull. The irony of the situation. Here's an irony for you. Gary Grimmon, the guy who founded Matchmakers Anonymous or Match.com, he encouraged everybody, sign up, sign up, sign up. He encouraged his girlfriend to sign up. A few weeks later, she found somebody on Match.com and ran off with somebody else. Here's an irony for you. The most shoplifted book in America is the Bible. Seriously? Seriously? I mean, some of those are humorous situations that you look at and say, that's just kind of funny. I'll give you one that's not funny. This is not funny. This is a rebuke to you and me. That when we start talking about you and me who claim to be Bible believers, who carry our Bibles and study our Bibles and come to church and say, teach us the Bible, who have had the privilege of having somebody open up the Bible and show us, whether it be a Sunday school teacher, a parent, whether it be an individual who is a co-worker, a relative, or somebody else, to share from the Bible how you can know that you are on your way to heaven, which the Bible says. The Bible says these things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. So the irony is, many of us have had that privilege of somebody opening up the Word of God. The God wooing us with His Spirit, bringing us to a point where we would pray to get saved. The irony is that 95% of the American Christian community who claims to be born again, having been led to the Lord by somebody, 95% have never personally shared the gospel with somebody else. That's not, a, that's not a funny, happy, silly irony. That's a sad irony. That somebody cared enough to share with you, have you cared enough to share with somebody else? The irony of that situation is that Jesus Christ, he wanted this to be done. You go through multiple passages of Scripture, and I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 28 with me this morning. Matthew 28. But you just gloss in your mind... And think with me about all the different times that Jesus in his ministry was saying to his disciples, go out, share the word. Now, initially he said, share with only Israel. But in Mark chapter 6, we've been studying Mark on Wednesday nights. We looked at it the last couple weeks, how he sent them out, going out, preaching and teaching and giving them the ability to cast out demons so that his disciples were multiplying this gospel sharing. He says in Matthew 10, which is the parallel passage, go to the house of Israel, keep on talking, go and share. We read and talked about this three weeks ago in John chapter 17. Jesus' final prayer that he is praying with his disciples when he is closing down the upper room Last Supper experience, he prays and he says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, even so I am sending these into the world. And he's talking about his disciples. The 11 who are in that room, he's saying, God bless them, God keep them, I'm sending them out to share my message after I leave. Then in that same text, just a few verses later, he prays for those who will eventually believe through their witness. That's you and me, who generation after generation, it kind of passed down until it comes to a point that we hear the gospel and that we are sharing. He says, I'm praying for them, that they, those individuals, us, that we too would follow through. And in Matthew chapter 28, it's the record of his last words before he departs from the earth. It's a setting that you're all familiar with. It's a passage that many of you can quote. In fact, most of you could get up here and do a better job of sharing the truths in there than I can. But in this text, we know that Jesus is meeting with his disciples. He has already died, buried, resurrected. He's in those 40 days that he is spending time with the disciples instructing them. 
He had the, the popular story, as you read back in just a few verses earlier, verses 11, 12, 13. The popular story that's being propagated by his enemies is that his disciples stole his body. That's why the tomb is empty. And so they're trying to put to rest the idea that he's resurrected. And so the, he meets with his disciples, and he's meeting with them in Galilee. We don't even exactly know where it is, but he's meeting with them. At this time, we don't know how many there are that are meeting with him. Many of the Bible scholars think that this is his meeting with the 500 mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That they are all gathered, the multitude of his disciples. And he's having his last words. As he approaches them, as we read in this text, he approaches them and some of them are still doubting. Some of them are still wondering, is it real? We've heard from the others that he's appeared. We've heard from the others that he's risen. And we even read that, por- that portion of verse 17 where it says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, the bulk of them, but some were still doubting. And Jesus walks up to them and he speaks to them his final words. And he gives them his final commandments, his final instructions. And we read those words in verse 18 in the middle. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, or the end of the age, depending upon your translation. When he makes these comments, what we could conclude is he's giving some doctrinal instruction. This isn't his goal, but this isn't where he's targeting, but he's going to teach them and remind them of a couple things. He's God. This is just a reaffirmation. I'm God. I am God Almighty. I'm not just a man. I'm God Almighty. I am omnipotent. All power is given unto me, both in heaven and in earth. I am the God, the one who possesses that. He lets them know I'm omnipresent. I'm not just a man. I am God. I will be everywhere with all of you at any time, any place you go. He mentions his omni-existence. The idea that I am never going to die. I'm never going to cease to exist. I'm with you through whatever time from here on out. He alludes as well to that idea that he is with the Father and the Spirit, that they are one. Because it makes that comment, he says in the passage, baptize them in the singular name. One name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they are all one. That whole concept of the Trinity some struggle with, and yet this isn't the only text that alludes to it. There are multiple passages of scriptures that talk about there's a plurality with God, that there are more than one. Let's make man in our image. Let's us confound the language. The idea of in the Isaiah where who will go for us? We read elsewhere the, uh, command, the statements about the idea of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all being mentioned in the same phrases on multiple times. When Jesus was baptized, here he is physically, the Father speaks out audibly, and the Spirit descends that they're able to see that and understand it. There's a three different persons all united in one. How that works, we in our finite minds cannot fully comprehend, but it's a biblical fact. We read even in the Old Testament, where it's the messenger, the Messiah, is speaking. He says, and now the Lord God and his spirit has sent me, the one who is going to be the redeemer of Israel. This isn't a new concept to the New Testament, nor is it a new concept that all of a sudden has come up in in recent history. This idea of the three-in-one is something that was expressed all the way through the Bible, and we have that concept where Jesus, in his last statement, is saying, I and the Father and the Spirit, we are under one name. And so we have a lot of doctrine here. We have a tremendous amount. But there's not a statement here made just to be a doctoral thesis. Jesus is speaking to give information to his disciples. 
Information that those 500 needed at that moment. That they were, some of them were, uh, were puzzled. Some were in a quandary. Some were still wondering, what's this mean for us? Are you leaving? Are you staying? And he makes three, makes a lot of statements. But let's summarize them in three. That are very profound. That are very important. He's basically saying to his disciples, I am alive. I am still alive. Me, physically. I'm alive and I'm in control. When he says that idea that all power is, he's making this appearance, that it's given unto me, he is letting them know and reassuring them that nothing has, has waned in his life. He hasn't all of a sudden become weaker and there's not a part of him missing because of the torture and the suffering that he's experienced. You know how sometimes you all of a sudden get the flu? You get sick. Some of you have had the experience with sinus infections, other one of those, some of those congestions, and it takes you a while to recover. You get sick, and it's not a, it's not a terminal sickness, obviously, because you're here, but all of a sudden you've been sick, and it's taking you days. It's taking you weeks to get that strength back. Well, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm not weakened. I'm not in rehab. I'm not in recovery. I am alive right here. I am present with you. And I have all power restored unto me of my full Godhead. I have all power in heaven. I have all power on earth. Do you remember a few months before this? Satan offered him to be in control of all kingdoms. If you would bow down to me, Satan said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, Jesus is saying, I have all the kingdoms of the earth and I have all the kingdoms of heaven under my control by doing it God's way. And so I am restored. I am there. I am alive. You who are doubting, you who are struggling, you who are saying, well, is it a figment? Is it something that, that maybe it didn't happen? It's too good to be true. I am alive and in control. And God the Father is exalting me to the throne in heaven. That's a very important statement that they need to get. That they need to understand. That we need to understand that Jesus is alive today. That he has all power. He has all authority. In fact, he is in heaven right now. This isn't something that's legendary or mystical or you know, something from you know, the Marvel comics. This is a reality. Jesus is alive and in heaven right now. He has all authority. Therefore, when we come to worship, we're worshiping a living person. We're worshiping a person who is listening to us, who is able to be in our presence and be in other presence of other believers at the same moment. He's alive. He's well. And since he is exalted, we should give him praise. And since he is exalted, he's our authority. He's supposed to be in control of our lives beyond Sunday morning. With that in mind, Jesus says to the disciples, I have all power. I have all authority over heaven and earth. Therefore, what I'm going to tell you next, you need to listen and do because I'm your authority. And in the next phrase, he gives them a mission. He says, since I'm alive and well, I have a mission for you to accomplish. I have a job for you who claim to be my followers. I'm going to give you a job. And you need to do it because I am your authority. If you really believe in me, if you really say this, if you really believe I'm exalted, you will do what I'm telling you. What does he tell us to do? He tells us in this text... There's one command that's stated in the text in the original. The command is where it goes, it says, Therefore, go, while going, teach all nations. That's the imperative, teach all nations. 
The word literally means, in the original language, make disciples. You go out and you make disciples. You go out, you make disciples. What he is talking about is back in Bible days, as Pastor Arch so excellently shared with us a few weeks ago in Sunday evening, is that the disciples in Bible days were people who would mimic an individual. They would follow the individual. They would adopt their teachings. They didn't associate with the school. They didn't identify them with some type of an association or a synod or some type of church government. They associated with an individual. So I'm a disciple of Gamaliel. I'm a disciple of whoever they would choose, Hillel, or somebody else. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to go and duplicate yourself. You get others to do the same thing you claim to be doing. You get others to become followers, mimickers of me. Now, in Bible days, you would mimic that person by learning of them, listening to them. In fact, you would even go so far as to try to act like them. You might even try to look like them. We had a missionary here just a few weeks ago during our missions month, and he was talking about working within the Muslims in the UK. And when he was working, some of you remember that he made the observation that he was there talking to some of the Muslims who are from the Middle East, and they understand that concept in the Middle East of a disciple, of somebody who is following. They asked him in his conversation of talking with them, are you really, really a disciple of Jesus Christ? He said, yes, I am. And they made the comment to him, where's your beard? He said, what do you mean? In their culture of the Middle East, if you're a disciple, you will try to look like the person. Even to the point that you will, you know, facial hair, if they had it, you want the facial hair as well. For men, obviously. And so, so he's saying here, he's saying, you know, that, that Jesus is saying, I want you to duplicate, get people to act like me, to walk like me, to talk like me, to worship like I worship, to pray like I did. That's a disciple. He says, I want you who claim to be my disciples, you 500, I want you to go and duplicate yourself. Now that means you got to get people, you got to share with them the truth of, being, of knowing being born again. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That idea of knowing that you're on your way to heaven. This isn't something we concoct. This isn't something we come up with. These are the words of Jesus that has the idea that you must be born again. And so when discipleship making, it starts with getting people to understand that all of us are sinners. As such, none of us deserves to get into heaven. We need somebody to take our sin away, and that somebody is Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but by him. So first step in discipleship making, it's an obvious that we have to explain to people that they need to be born again, that they need to be saved. Same idea, different terms, different Bible terms. They need to be converted. They need to repent of their sin. All of that is the same concept. But that's where we start. That's the beginning of discipleship. And so what we need to do is understand that making disciples, that isn't all we do. Oh, let's go out. Let's share the Word of God. Let's get 300 people to make professions of faith this day. We're not following the Great Commission. Making disciples means we need to help them to go beyond just getting birthed. We need to help raise them. We need to help give them food. We need to change their spiritual diapers. We need to help them learn to walk, to talk, to learn what to do, how to act, so that they become more and more like Christ. And so in this text, he's saying, okay, this is what I want you to do. Train others to be like Jesus. 
That doesn't mean just giving out the gospel, which is a good thing to do. Giving out tracts, it's a good thing to do. Sharing the word, it's a great thing to do. But we have a bigger obligation to lead those people to the Lord and then train them and teach them even more and more and more of the word. By the way, it means this as well. It means that my obligation and yours isn't just to sit in the ivory halls of a church building and teach, 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 and instruct and learn and learn and learn and never reach outside these walls. That's wrong on our part. That would be wrong on my part or any of the staff. It's wrong on any of our church family to become content and to say, I'm just learning the Word of God. We're to be reaching out. We're to be sharing the Word of God. It's a command, folk. Make disciples is commanded, not just of, of certain individuals, but every disciple, including you who are born again and who claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He who has all authority has a mission for you. You're to be duplicating others in the faith. Are you? Have you? Now, in this text, he tells us where it's supposed to be done. He says you're supposed to be doing this in all nations. Well, this was profound for those audience. That first audience, that he's saying to them, you got 500, you need to reach more. You don't become content with 500 or 1,000. You need to make sure. You need to reach out beyond the Jewish country that, we have, that I've sent you to in the past. Remember, I said it already. Mark 6, Matthew 10. When he sent them out in the past, he said, only go to the Jews. Now he's saying, go everywhere. Go beyond our Jewishness. Go beyond that ethnic group. Spread the gospel. Share it with any. Don't be prejudiced towards any other group. You share it with all nations. Wherever you are living, I have a plan for you. This plan is for you to make disciples. Wherever I order you to go, wherever I allow you to live in your neighborhood, at your workplace, at your school, you're supposed to be a witness there helping to make disciples. So if you're a believer and you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you say, I know God led me to this job. I know God put us in this neighborhood. I know that God has moved into this community. Why has he done that? What is his purpose for putting you in the place you are? For you to make disciples. And he's put you in those unique spots. He goes on and he tells us, now here's the way you do it. After this, one of all authorities says, here's your job. Here's what you do to accomplish it. Number one, you need to go. Literally, it's the idea while you are going. It's assumed. God assuming that you are not just sitting back and waiting for people to come and seek you out. It's very rare that we get the Acts 16 where somebody comes bursting in our jail and says, good sirs, what must I do to be saved? In all the years of ministry here, I only recall one time receiving one phone call, somebody calling and saying, hey, I, somebody dropped off some literature at our house. I'm calling to you and I have a question for you. What must I do to be saved? I couldn't answer. I passed out. I was just dumbfounded that somebody would approach because that's not the way it normally works. And so we're supposed to be going after them. We're not supposed to be sitting back in our worship center waiting for people to come to us with a hunger for the Word of God. We're to be going. We're to be out of here. We're to, we're to take the Word to the restaurants this afternoon. We're to be taking the Word to the neighborhood. We're to be taking our witness to school tomorrow. You don't just say, well, it'll happen when we do a final Friday. That's Pastor John's job. No, it's your job. 
You are supposed to be helping to bring others to hear the gospel. You're to be going. I'm to be going. We're to be sharing the word of God. So I ask you the question, what personal or what involvement are you doing in getting out, sharing your faith on a personal or group level? What are you doing? What have you done? Are you reaching out? You say, well, I'm sitting here and I drop money in the plate. That's great. That's good. Thank you. Is that what Jesus said in this passage? Drop money in a plate. Well, I'm praying that others will go. That's not what Jesus said in this passage. You, authority of Christ, you go out and you make some disciples. So in your neighborhood where God has placed you, in your workplace, in your school where God has placed you, what are you doing? You're supposed to be going. That is seeking, looking, reaching out, trying to establish some type of contact with somebody that you in your, in, in your abilities that God gives you can share your faith and help them to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. You can't excuse yourself. You can't say, I go to church on Sunday morning at 10.30, I get out whenever Burgraff shuts up, and we leave, and that's all I need to do. Then you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Disciples listen to the Master. They do what He says. And so Jesus says, here's what you do. You take some initiative to go out. Try to reach somebody. But He doesn't stop there. He gives a second element in this process. You go out, you try to reach them. And then what you do is you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's make it a little bit more uncomfortable. What he's saying in this text is he is saying that baptism is somehow connected very closely with discipleship making. That means this. What you hear on the internet, what you hear some popular preacher say these days, they are wrong. This idea of baptism isn't something that the church started sometime after the book of Acts. This idea of baptism isn't something that started with Baptists in the 1700s. The idea of baptism started with Jesus Christ. He said it. He's the one that said this is part of discipleship making. When Jesus spoke about it, he is using a term, a word that is very specific. It isn't the word that means sprinkle. It isn't the word that means pour water on somebody. It's the word that means to take somebody and put them under the water. That is the only form of biblical baptism you can find in the word of God. Being immersed, put under the water to show the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. For those of us who were sprinkled, who were were given some dabs of water, that isn't baptism by the Bible. That may be by some church's concoction, but that isn't biblical. Jesus says, I want you to do this. I want you to go, and when you've reached and ministered to somebody, I want you to see that they get baptized. Get put under the water. Why? What's that have to do? This, I'm going to make you uncomfortable. Everybody's going to become squeamish by me saying this. Baptism and salvation are closely tied together in the New Testament. Can't get away from this. They're closely tied together. They aren't one and the same, but they're very closely tied together. 
The reason I say that is there's multiple passages where he, they say, what do we need to do to get saved? You need to give, get, repent. You need to get baptized. Paul says, what do I need to do? He says, you need to get baptized, symbolizing the idea of the washing away of the sins while you're calling upon the name of the Lord. So many of us, as we're you know, baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. There is, there is even the point that many people are getting baptized so uh, in response to their relatives who have passed away their testimony. How is it that baptism and being born again are so intertwined, so close? It is not. It is not to say this. It is not saying that baptism completes your salvation or is in any way, shape, or form for bringing about your salvation. Okay, I prayed and asked Jesus to save me. I repented of my sin, asked him to be my savior. Now I want to get baptized, put under the water so that I am absolutely for sure, totally cleansed of my sins and that completes my salvation. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't indicate that. In fact, the Bible indicates that there is nothing we do, no works we do, going to church, getting baptized, putting money, none of that gets us into heaven. For by grace are you saved through faith, nothing of ourselves. It's totally a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Nobody, nobody, nobody is going to stand before God and say, I believe plus I gave money. I believe, plus I learned the Ten Commandments. I believe, plus I you know, wore nice clothes. None of that works. It's simply faith. Faith in Jesus Christ that gets us saved. We even read in Titus, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost, it's a work of the Spirit. It happens inside. So baptism doesn't add to your salvation. Give you a classic example. Thief on the cross. He didn't get baptized, but Jesus says, today you'll be with me where? Paradise. Okay, so how did he get to paradise? Faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance of his sin, saying to the other guy, hey, we deserve to die. We deserve all this. This man is innocent. Please forgive me. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Faith. Faith. Simple faith. And yet I'm going to make that comment that baptism is closely tied to it because baptism, for two reasons, baptism is the one thing that pictures to everybody else what Jesus has done for you. Baptism pictures that he died, buried, and resurrected. Now you could use dirt. You could dig a grave, get put in, get buried, and get uncovered. You wouldn't survive. So Jesus modified it and said, here, we're going to use water. We're going to have you go under the water and come back up to show that he did what for you? He died, hello, buried, resurrected. You're showing what he did for you to give you salvation. You're showing that here's what I've done. I have died to my sins and I'm believing in Jesus and he alone to get me saved. I'm showing that I've been born again. Something is gone. Now it's all new. It's baptism. And it's closely tied in that it is the only church right practice that illustrates visually what happened for you to have your sins forgiven. It doesn't bring about your forgiveness. It doesn't add to your repentance. But it is, is it a visible expression? Here's what happened to me. Here's what Jesus did for me. He died, buried, resurrected, and I'm a follower of his. 
Now that's one, why, one reason I say that it is really closely tied. The other reason I say it's closely tied with Jesus Christ is because if you go into the New Testament and you look up the passages in the book of Acts, every time some individual is getting born again, they are getting baptized the first thing. The first thing after they're saved. As soon as possible, they're getting, they're showing their faith in Jesus Christ. They're identifying. They are all of a sudden those who had gladly received up in that region of Jerusalem and in Samaria. Those who the eunuch who is traveling by, by chariot away from Jerusalem saying, what do I do to be saved? What do I? He said, you need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then he says, well, then what do I do? He says, you know, I get baptized. He gets him baptized. Saul, he's blinded after he met Jesus. One of the first things he does when his eyes are restored to his sight, he goes out and gets baptized by immersion. Paul, uh, Peter's dealing with Cornelius. These all, as he shares the word of God, they all respond to him sharing the word of God. They start evidencing that there's a change, a spiritual working within their body that's becoming very evident. And Peter turns to his friend and says, can any of these forbid these people the waters of baptism? Peter, in his own mind, thought this is the next thing they need to do. This is what this group needs to do. They need to get baptized. Why? Because it shows you are identifying with Christ, what he's done for you, and you're going to live a new life for him. So in that sense, when the Bible talks about baptism, here in this passage, Jesus is saying, go out and make disciples. When you go out and make disciples, what you need to do is you need to share with those individuals that they need to be born again. When they respond... By faith, then get them baptized. Have them follow the Lord. And I will remind you, baptism always follows in Scripture after somebody's prayer to get saved. Never before. It's always after. So the assumption in this passage as Jesus is teaching is very simple. You get them baptized. You get them identifying with me. You get them showing that they're my follower because that's the first thing in the book of Acts they're they're doing. They've gotten born again. They've prayed spiritually on the inside. There's been a renewal, a washing away. On the outside, show it. Show it immediately. And so in that sense, baptism is closely related to that idea of getting born again. And so baptism and disciple making. here's Here's a fact you can't deny from this text. The fact is they're closely tied together. Jesus is saying, if you're making disciples and they've responded, then you've got to talk to them about baptism. You've got to show it to them. People who claim that this is something that, that, you know, that Jesus, you know, disciples, you know, that they, 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 that they concocted, that is wrong, okay? And he's making it clear that anybody who claims to be a disciple of Christ, they're supposed to be baptized. In the process of becoming a disciple, they have to be baptized to be a real follower of Christ, to be one who is dedicated and doing what Christ says. Darest I say it? And some of you get upset. If you are going to be a disciple of Christ, according to this text, you have to be baptized after getting saved. You have to. You can't be a disciple any other way. That's how disciples are made. That's what Jesus said. And that baptism has to be, according to this text, by immersion. According to all the texts. It has to come after salvation. So potentialist disciples, okay? There's no exceptions. There's no... You're a teenager. And you say, well, you know, I don't need to do it yet. Now, if your parents are involved in that, they, they have say in that. 
But if you're a young person or you're a single person, you say, well, I'm, except, I'm exempt because I'm a female or I'm too, too young or too old. There's no exemptions. This is what the text says. The text says that if somebody who is refusing to follow in that step is not becoming a true disciple of Christ. This text is telling me, it's telling me that I'm wrong if I avoid pointing out baptism. I know the claim is often made, well, that, you, you pre- people, you preach baptism all the time. You bring it up so lot. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I'm not sorry. This is what Jesus told us to speak about. This is what Jesus said we're supposed to be doing. If you don't like it, take it up with Christ. I have an obligation to declare the Word of God. You can't take the Word of God any other way. It simply says that when we are in the process of making disciples, we're to go, when they respond, they're to be baptized. That's what Christ said. So we're supposed to be declaring that. We're supposed to be sharing that. We're supposed to be offering that as a challenge and as an opportunity. We're not supposed to be discouraging it. Who would be, what would we be doing in the Word of God by saying somebody who's a would-be disciple to say, we don't want you to get baptized. We don't want you to follow Christ. We don't want you to demonstrate your faith that way. That would be wrong. As long as they are born again, they understand what's going on, they are with the authorities over them, they are allowed to do it, then great, they should be baptized. By immersion. After they've been saved. And if that applies to you, then my message to you is you should get baptized to follow the Word of God. So we come and say, okay, what else did he say in this text? And I need, I need to just take a moment for it. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This causes so much confusion. So many people are torn about this whole phrase. They say, oh, well, then what this passage teaches is there is a formula. And if we baptize somebody, by the way, for those visiting behind this curtain is where we have our baptistry. And so when we do baptisms, which if you're interested in being baptized, see us afterwards. We're doing, making opportunity over the next couple of weeks. Um, and so when we baptize somebody, we are supposed to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or we don't do it right. Is that what he's saying in this text? Which, by the way, we have purposely at times done baptisms and we don't say that. Just to see if anybody's listening. Okay. Baptize you in the name of Jesus. You didn't do what this passage said. I remind you what the Word of God says. Okay. The Word of God in other texts... Whoops, I got to go the right way. The Word of God in other texts says this. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay. So to baptize in the name of Jesus is appropriate biblically. To baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is appropriate biblically. Okay, and so there's nothing wrong with either. It's just the concept. I think the concept of what he's doing is there was a form of baptism that was happening by the Jews that was going on at that same time. Some of their communities, they were doing something to show that they were, and they, they put a different meaning to it. And I think what he's doing in this text is saying, you need to be baptized in the one baptism that is for believers. They're being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because remember, the Jews were rejecting Jesus. And so he's identifying, saying, you need to do the baptism that identifies you with me and the Father and the Spirit and the salvation that we bring you. And so I think that's his, his big gist here. There are some who say, well, you're supposed to be baptized three times. In the name of the Father, and of the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you have to have three baptisms. But that's not what the text says. 
The text doesn't say three baptisms. The text says be baptized in one name. The name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Besides, who died, buried, and resurrected? The Father? Hello? Jesus. Did the Spirit die, buried, and resurrect? No, you're not showing their death, burial, and resurrection. You're showing Christ. So that whole concept, you know, and some will say, well, wait a minute. The, the reason being it's three times, because the word here in the text is baptizings. It doesn't come out in English because the English is more difficult. So it's baptizings them. Therefore, we need to do multiple dipping in the water. Because baptizings. No, no, no. Think with me. This, it's, it's so simple. Okay, it's just so simple. It's not complicated. He's not saying, okay, you got to get baptizings, name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They didn't die, bury, resurrect. It's baptism in the name, singular. And as well, we don't say, he are, they is. We say, he is, they are. You match your verb, if it's a plural, you match it with the subject as a plural or a singular. So if you have multiple baptizings, why is that in this text? Because you have multiple people getting baptized. Look at your, look at your verse. Baptizing that one? No. Baptizing them. It's a plural. You've got to have a plural verb. So the multiple baptisms, because there's multiple people who are getting baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So we, we come along, we say, okay, here we, here's what we do. We say, okay, what else is in this text? Okay. He's saying, third step, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So we get somebody the gospel, they respond, they follow in believer's baptism, then we're done. That's like getting some baby born, getting them home, getting them through the very first stage and weeks of life, and then you're done parenting. They're three, year, they're three weeks old, I'm done. I can go back to sleeping through the night. No, 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 no. You aren't going to sleep through the night until they're 21. Okay, they're just going to... It's just... You gave that up. Okay. You aren't done with raising them until... <laughs> right? It never stops. And that's okay. Okay. So when are we done with somebody that we lead to the Lord? When are we done with them? We're not. They're our spiritual child. We're their spiritual shepherd. We have to keep on keeping on next to them. Helping them. Encouraging them. Because as they get a little bit older, they need to learn things like how to pray. They need to learn things like how to raise the kids. They need to learn things how to take care of finances. They need to learn things like how to overcome a besetting sin. And the problem is... Most of us, when we got saved, most of us, we were stuck there as if, okay, you're on your own. Follow Jesus. You know, live for the Lord. Go share the word. Pray. And we were those toddler baby Christians who were going, duh. What do I do? How do I read my Bible? He says, turn to Amos. I don't know where Amos is. You know, he says, turn to Genesis. I haven't a clue. Okay, Do you remember those days? Do you remember that the best part of your Bible was those thumbnail things that you could find the books? And then the worst part about it is the preacher's going so fast, by the time you got there, he's three chapters later. And you're going, I can't keep up, so why even bother? 
I don't, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't know. We need discipleship. We need training. We need teaching. And Jesus said, this is my plan. My plan is for you to go. My plan is you to share the word of God and get them so that they understand they need to be born again and they show that by getting baptized. And then what you do is you come next to that person and you help them and you help them and you help them and you keep on teaching them. You keep on training them. What do I say? How did I act? How are they supposed to talk? How are they supposed to work? How are they supposed to play the sports? How are they supposed to? It takes time and investing. And it takes energy. It takes the fact, the idea is here that we're supposed to keep on learning. If you're a disciple, you're a follower of Jesus, you're to keep on learning, teaching them to observe all things. That teaching is progressive, so therefore the learning is progressive. If you're trying to instruct somebody, it means you keep on teaching, keep on teaching, keep on teaching, keep on teaching, keep on giving the Word of God. For you to do that, you've got to keep on learning the Word of God. And for some, some in this room, they've stopped. Okay, I'm not learning anymore because I got it all together already. Really? Pray tell, come and do something magical so I can catch up to you because I don't feel like I got anything together. It's an ongoing struggle and battle. Any of you, all, any of you have no more trials? Any of you got, you, you, any of you perfectly sinless? If you just raise your hand, you lied. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a growing process. And he didn't say, teach them to learn. Here's the key phrase. Teach them to do what? Look at your Bible. Okay. Observe. What's it mean to observe? I'm observing you. That's not what the word means. That's not the concept. What's the word original? What do, you, do you believe it means? Not just seeing, but doing. Doing the word of God. Doing it, doing it, doing it. Learning. Help that person to learn what to do, what to do. Okay, fine. Here we sit. We all have the Bibles. We have great knowledge. Are you, are you really putting him first above family? Are you humbly serving others the way Jesus said? That's observing to do all things. Are you blessing the enemies, those who said something bad about you? Are you visiting the widows this week? That was observing. That's supposed to be doing. Praying, forgiving. That's doing what he said. You say, well, I got it all down pat. I don't think so. I think all of us are still growing and we're still struggling and we're supposed to be helping others who are growing and struggling to learn how to do some of this. And to say, okay, we, we, we've got to work at this idea of worshiping the way Christ said. Being honest the way Christ said. That your yea is yea and your nay is nay. We have growth to be done in the areas of controlling our minds, our words, our speech. Learning not to be critical of others. Learning to be individuals that guard our attitudes so that we're not judging others and assuming the worst about them lest we be judged. Make sure that we don't have that beam in our own eye. We're supposed to be laying up treasure. We're supposed to be trusting Christ. We're to be bearing fruit, more fruit, more fruit, more fruit. We're supposed to be abiding in the word. But some people can't abide because they don't know how to read it. They don't know what it means. They need instruction. They need help. They need you. To be involved with discipleship. 
We're supposed to be praying for missionaries. We're supposed to be loving the way that, that Christ said we're, we're obligated to one another. These are areas we're supposed to be helping one another grow, grow, grow. Because discipleship making is a lifelong process. In your life and in the life of others. That means you are supposed to give time and effort to help out others. To reach them with the gospel. To give them the baby steps of confessing their faith openly in baptism. And then to help nurture them like you did with your kids. And feeding them and feeding them and guiding them and directing them. And taking them through all those processes of growth. Where all of a sudden they went to school for the first time. And they had to deal with friends that were mean to them. And you're teaching their kids. And you're teaching them about the simple things and the major things. The school subjects that you no longer know how to do. And you're teaching them and guiding them. And you're getting them to the point where they can get their license. God bless you. Okay. And you're training them and then you're getting them ready to move out of the house and some of the things you got to teach them so they can survive is how to cook, how to clean, how to do their own laundry maybe and then you're teaching them how to, you know, what they do in a career and you're guiding, it takes time it takes years and then after they move out you still invest are you investing in anybody spiritually? have you made any effort to help another person grow within the framework of the local church. Who can you point to that you are trying to reach with the gospel? Or you have reached in the last two, three, four years. That you have mentored them. You had helped them to understand baptism. And you are now investing in them on a regular basis of teaching them the word of God. 95% of those of us who have been invested in and had somebody share the gospel have never talked to another person about Christ. And we come to church and we think everything is okay. But we violate what is called the Great Commission. And if any man knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is So Jesus reveals some very important stuff. He reveals that he's alive and in control. He reveals very simply, I have a mission for you. We had something happen here in our home that was humorous. In our backyard, there was a a single tree that was growing by the corner of of the yard. And when we moved in a couple years ago, I decided I would cut back the tree a little bit, do some trimming. I tell you, I kill plants. Artificial plants cannot survive my house. So this living tree didn't really survive my pruning. And so last year it had like five leaves on it, but it had a whole bunch of these branches that stuck out all everywhere else. I, I, anyway, I, I know somebody's going to send me emails. Here, here's how you do it. Don't worry about it. Keep your emails. The tree isn't there anymore. Okay, so <laughs> it got dangerous playing games. Because all of a sudden you got this branch come running around the garage and all of a sudden there's a branch right here. You know, it's right so, and so I decided that this year I'd just take care of it. So I went out. <clears throat> tree's gone. Paul Bunyan. Go out there. <laughs> Chainsaw. Power. Mail with power in hand. <clears throat> it was a great day. Loved it. Loved it. So I got to get... So a week later... The grandkids, and we use this tree. This is like Frisbee tag. You, know, you, you hide behind the tree because when you throw it, there's so many branches, the Frisbee never get through. You're safe. So last year, we, this was our safe zone. We used this tree. 
So I thought, oh, sure, the grandkids, they will recognize it's gone. They'll see it right away because now they don't have something to hide behind. So a couple weeks ago, Tony brought Preston over, and he's walking around the yard. He says, hey, do you see something that Papa took out of the yard? (laughs) Yeah, it looks different. What's different about it? Here's the stump. I don't know. He's standing on the stump. Uh, Papa washed the windows. They weren't that bad. I mean, the windows aren't that bad. I don't know where he was going with that one. And his dad said, look down. Look down under your foot. He didn't get it. It's funny when a kid doesn't get something missing. And it's, it's funny, humor's cute, when he misses a tree that he used to run into. Yeah, it's missing. And it's funny that he didn't get it. It's not funny when you've cut out discipleship making out of your life and you don't get it. I'm at church and everything's okay. I don't ever share the Word of God. I don't do any Bible studies with anybody. I'm not praying about any particular friend of mine. And everything in my life is okay. Nothing's missing. It's not funny. When there's a 16-year-old who grew up in this church and has heard the Word of God and they have no Desire to reach other 16-year-olds. It's not funny. When couples get married here, or they raise their kids here, and they hear about the grace of God and the goodness of God, and how they got born again, and they see their family responding, but they have never shared the word, and they have no interest in sharing the word. Just the big interest is, get here Sunday morning and get out. It's not funny. What must the king of glory think at this moment? All power is given unto me, and I'm giving you a mission. And I'm telling you, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And when you do this mission, I'll make it so easy for you because I'm going to accompany you and I'm going to assist you wherever you go. Here, here, in that last phrase, he says, look, look, look. I am with you always. It's a promise. It's a promise from the king of kings, the Lord of lords. It is a promise to be present with us. In other words, when he went to heaven, he didn't abdicate. He isn't saying, I'm out of here, you're on your own. Absolutely not. Well, what he's saying is so profound that literally the wording is this. Stop. Look. We translate it. Low. Look, listen. Listen to me. This is so important. It's so profound. Listen. Listen. I personally... I'm going to be with you. I'm not sending an angel. I'm not sending somebody else. But what's going to happen is I who am tied up with one, with the Father and the Son, I will be personally accompanying you via the Spirit. Every one of you, personally, every single disciple who is saying, I'm going to go out, I'm going to reach, I'm going to pray, I'm going to try to teach, I'm going to try, I will be with you. 
You don't teach any class where I'm not assisting you. You don't give out any gospel witness where I'm not helping you. You don't do any Bible study where I will not give you assistance. I will be with you any place, any time, and it will be permanent. Unto the end of the age, I will keep on helping my disciples, every single one of them, until they go anywhere, everywhere, all places. It will never end that I am going to be assisting. This is going to be profitable. We're going to work together. You're going to be my partner. I will be the spiritual one working behind the scenes. You do the upfront. You share the word. You give it, and I will be convicting, and I'll be drawing. I'll be wooing, and we're going to do this job together. And in fact, I will protect you to a degree with this message. This is the amazing part of, this, of the passage. To me, that just... Earlier in the text, the soldiers came back and they said, Yo, we fell out. We, the, the angel came and took, the stone was rolled away. Da-da-da-da. You read about it. Go back to verse 9. Now, when they were going about, some of the watch came to the city, that is, the soldiers by the tomb, showed the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled, they gave, the chief priests gave the soldiers large sums of money. Look at verse 13. They said... We want you to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were sleeping. Duh! Duh! Soldiers in those days who fell asleep on the job were killed. So at the risk of your own life, at the risk of your life, you lie. You say you fell asleep, but while you were sleeping, and you were sound asleep, think this through. You tell people you were sleeping... But you were so sound asleep, you didn't hear the disciples come and roll the stone away and steal the body, but you know they did it. Because you saw them? You were sleeping? What type of testimony is this? And you tell your boss that, and by the way, your boss is going to want to kill you. What do they say? And And if this comes to the governor's ears... What will we do for you? We will persuade him and we will, we will use our power to do what? Protect you. What, a, what an interesting story. Jesus, in, as he has this recorded, the liars are told they'll be protected by authorities. And Jesus tells his disciples, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you tell the truth and real authority will take care of you. He comes to a climactic end to saying, you got this, I got this, we're going to do it together. That Christ is with us no matter where we go, to reach out in the classroom, wherever, his power is going to be used to help you to share your faith in Christ. Now the key is, I'm going to reach. One of our gentlemen, who's here usually regularly, but unable to, because of a stumble, a fall, injured themselves in the last couple of weeks. And they determined that they were going to work at being a gospel witness, trying to be a disciple maker. And so while they were at the hospital and then in rehab, they've been giving out literature, been talking about their faith in Christ the last couple of weeks. So that some of the people in authority at the medical facilities have come and said, are you a preacher? And the person said, No. Well, yeah. In a way, I am. I'm not a pastor, but I'm a preacher of Jesus Christ. And keeping on giving out the gospel, giving out the gospel and talking. There's a true story of a young man, his name is Roger Sims, leaving the military 
And as he's leaving the military, he's hitchhiking. This is a few years ago. He's hitchhiking, and he's trying to get back to his home. That's a small town a couple hours from Chicago. And as he's hitchhiking, he's thinking nobody's going to stop, nobody's stopping, and we all don't know. It's kind of scary times. All of a sudden, up pulls this really fancy car. You know, neat car, and window rolls down. He looks in, and there's an older gentleman. Gentleman, very distinguished looking. The gentleman says, hey, you need a ride? I'm headed towards Chicago. Yeah, well, I, I don't need to go as far as Chicago. It's on the way to the little town. Oh, I know where that little town is. I can drop you off. Hop in. So he gets in the car, introduce themselves, and Roger tells him his name, and the man says, my name is Mr. Hanover. And they start driving. And they're sharing all the little ditties that you would share, and you know, telling life stories, different things like that. And Roger has just... He's just remembering from the week before that the chaplain had spoken on Matthew 28 about being a witness and trying to be a disciple maker. And he's thinking, I should share my faith with this man. I should tell him about being born again. And they're driving down the road and he's coming up with excuses. He's rich. He's older. He'll kick me out of the car. He's nice. He'll get mad. They killed Jesus. He'll kill me too. You know, he's giving all the different excuses. And so finally, he just, the Spirit of God is burning. He says, Lord, help me to say the right thing. And Mr. Hanover brings up a statement about church and some, as they pass some, some small hamlet. And so Roger takes advantage. And he starts talking to him about his faith in Christ. And he goes through the gospel, and Mr. Hanover's not stopping, not talking, not interrupting, listening, listening, staring straight ahead. And Roger keeps on talking, talking, talking. When it's all done, Roger says to him, he said, what do you think? Mr. Hanover doesn't say a word, pulls the car over by the side of the road. And Roger's sure he's getting kicked out, he's going to get a lecture. And the man puts his head on the steering wheel and says, I don't know what to do, what what do I pray? What do I pray? So Roger helps Mr. Hanover, explaining how you can pray from your heart. He prays. Starts the car, starts driving down the road. After a little bit, he says, this is the greatest day of my life. This is so neat. And he's, they're sharing, talking about the Lord, and he drops him off, Roger off, and he says, hey, now Roger, if you ever get to Chicago, look me up. I, I help small businesses, I'll help you out in the future. Roger takes the card and doesn't see him again. Gets into his home and settles in the home. The first year goes by, he's in the second year, he gets married, he's starting a business, he has a small baby. Five, six years go by, and he's going to make a business trip to Chicago, and he's thinking, hey, you know what? I wonder whatever happened to that man, because he's kept his card in his trinket box, and he pulls out the business card and said, you know, if I could get a hold of Mr. Hanover, maybe he has some expertise he can share with me if we can do lunch. So he gets to Chicago, takes care of some of the business, goes to Hanover Enterprises, finds it. It's a pretty nice-looking building, lots of different business offices. He goes in, asks if he can see Mr. Hanover. The lady asks why. He says, well, we were friends, you know, had, had occasion, we talked, and I just want to stop by. And she says, well, wait here a minute. And she goes, comes back after a few more minutes, says, here, let me show you to a conference room. Takes him into the conference room, has him sit down, gets him coffee, gets him some things. And she said, you know, somebody with you in a moment. And then she left. And he's wondering, wow, wow, am I going to see him? What's going to happen? And in through the door comes a very distinguished woman. She's an older woman. She comes in and she, you know, introduces herself as Mrs. Hanover. I understand you're a friend of my husband's. yes. Well, when did you meet? I don't recall anything. And he said, well, actually we met on one extended occasion. It was five years ago. And uh, she caught her attention. She sits down. She said, and do you know when it was? 
He says, yeah, it's the day that I had left the military base. It was, you know, May 7th of such and such a year. And now her eyes get wider. And she said, when you were with my husband, did anything strange happen that day? Any, anything? Anything at all? And Roger's thinking, she's asking questions, hasn't said a word. Do I dare say anything to her? He says, well, actually, your husband asked Christ to be his Savior. She said, he did what? He explained the gospel to her, explained that all. And she said, and he prayed? She says, yeah, he prayed. He prayed and asked Christ. She is stunned. She is absolutely mortified, stunned, he thinks. And then she starts crying. And when she composes herself, she says, I'm really sorry. She says, my husband and I married when we were young. I grew up in a Christian home. I heard the gospel. When we started dating, I fell in love. I tried sharing the gospel. He said he would accept Christ sometime. We went through our years. He was always focused on the business. I kept on praying, kept on praying he gets saved. But he never did, he never did. Sometime between the time he dropped you off at your house and he continued his trip, he was in a head-on accident and he died. He never made it home that day. And for the past few years, I have been torn in my heart that I had prayed and prayed and prayed and I thought that God had not answered my prayers. I didn't know what to think about sharing the word with anybody. But she said, today you are a godsend. You have been a blessing to let me know that my husband's with the Lord. You have been a blessing and I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you shared the gospel with my husband on that day. In heaven, will someone turn to you and say these words, I am so grateful that you shared the gospel with me. Somebody tell you that? Father, I pray help me and my friends to live out this text, not just to talk about it, but to live it. To live it to the best of our abilities.